0: Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552.
1: Okay. I uh, want to welcome everyone to uh, the Guest of Freedom. I'm your host, Preston Washington, and uh, I am on with two uh, movie uh, producers. Um, would you introduce yourself, gentlemen? Yes, this is Don
2: Perry. I'm the writer producer of the film, Thrillings Darkly.
0: And this is Thomas Allen Harris. I'm the director, writer, and producer of the film. Um produced it along with uh Don Perry uh Deborah Will- Deborah Willis uh and um Ann Bennett and uh wrote it with uh Don Perry and also Paul Carter Harrison.
1: Okay, and has the film opened or about to open? Well, it's
2: opened in New York. It's opened in Chicago. It's in Milwaukee next week. Uh it played in um in uh in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh for uh, one date last week, and it'll be in sixteen cities oh, Hudson, it's in Hudson, New
1: York, and it'll be in sixteen cities over the next two months. In sixteen cities in two months, okay. Um Describe to our listeners uh, the nature of the film uh, without giving too much away.
2: Well, the film is basically about uh, the history of black photography and the way black uh, photographers have used the camera as a tool for social change from 1840 to the present. Uh, it uh, it It deals with representation uh, in terms of how the black subject was imaged and and how those images were used in order to create uh, a, a social, a political, and a cultural space for uh, black people in the country, um, as well as the uh, kind of the counter narratives uh, that were used to try to justify uh some of the inhumane treatment of of black people uh by picturing them uh, in 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 some derogatory and, and stereotypical ways many of which many of the stereotypes uh, you know continue to the present day but okay. we 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 have basically done uh a film that examines the construction of race and deconstructs how that was done And how African Americans have taken uh, control of their own self image and and created images that are much more affirming uh, and and much more validating uh, of of our
1: true experiences. Okay, so I would imagine that goes back to uh, the Civil War and slavery. It goes back there. It goes back (laughs)
2: before the Civil War.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the Civil War and slavery. Well, actually.
2: I, th- I think it's more interesting to, to posit the fact that when people think of photography in the Americas, right, uh, right. they don't necessarily associate the fact that one of the earliest photographers, because this, this technique got started in France uh, by a man named Louis Daguerre in the 1830s. And in 1838, uh, a free man of color named Jules Lyon was in France who studied this technique with Daguerre, and he brought that technique back to New Orleans, becoming one of the, one of the very first um, photographers in the country. So right there, I think we start the film with something that most people are completely unfamiliar with, the fact that you know, in terms of the earliest beginnings of this technique, this medium in the country, there are black people, and and we are right in the right in the thick of it in terms of, of introducing this technology and then as, as we go through the film uh using this tech pushing this technology forward uh in, in in really very critical ways.
1: Um so our listeners in case they might want to look that up could you give us a spelling on Jules Leon? Yes. And, Jules J and give, yeah. And before that, give us a little history on how it is that uh Jules was in France in 1838 well he was a free
2: man of color in new orleans and and at at that particular point in time uh, new orleans was considered an open city Uh, people could come and go and and even uh, people of color could come and go they could own property they could do things that were not necessarily available to them in other parts of the of the deep south um, we don't go into the full history of what brought him to France and how long he was there but what's most interesting for our story and where we pick it up is the fact that in 1839 he's opened a studio in New Orleans and as far as we can tell it's, it's either the first one or certainly one of the very 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 first uh, studios to open and it begins this whole process then of studio portraiture which is so integral to the beginning of, pe- uh, of, of photography. Jules. Leon. it's J U L E S L I O N Jules Lyon. and uh, he is really you know one of the one of the pioneers of, of photography studio photography uh, and the bringing of photography to the US Right I now, you were going to, you, you were going to go into the civil war and and that's another very fascinating period because in the history of photography uh, the way the black subject is shown, uh, we are enslaved and we are destitute. We are poor, but and, and a lot of that comes uh, from the framing of the black subject by white photographers in that very early days of the medium. However, it's important to understand that there were a lot of black photographers. I mean, the way you learn this was by apprenticeship, and there were a number of black photographers who were learning from each other and and were going around and shooting, you know, the citizens of the communities in which they lived, many of whom were black. And so the portraiture that that we've had in the film from that particular era show a very wide diversity and richness uh, of, of black subjects, that you know, most of which are images that we've never seen before. And you know, just some of the photographers that we cover, uh, there's Augustus Washington in the 1850s. Uh, there's uh, uh, J- James Presley Ball in the 1850s, early 1860s. Uh, we've got uh, images of black families uh, that you know, went into the studio and looked nothing like the, uh, the kinds of things that we're used to seeing. Um, we've got uh, wealthy planters. We've got people, uh, you know, wealthy Mississippi planters, who are black, um, and, and their portraits are being displayed right besides uh, you know, the people who were the founders of uh, Procter and Gamble, the Gamble family, uh, from the 1860s. We have a wealth of images of uh, the 1860s of Civil War soldiers who were black. 186,000 black people served in the Union Army. And as uh, Robin Kelly, one of the uh, people that we've interviewed for the film, he's an academic with UCLA, uh, one, one of the statements that he makes is that when you look at these images, it it, it it basically says we freed ourselves. It wasn't that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. You look at these soldiers, you look at these officers. I mean, most people have the, the sense that you know, the blacks who were in the military during the Civil War uh, were serving under white officers, but that's not true. When you look at these images, you're seeing black officers who were commanding black troops. Uh, I mean, this is a whole history that has been hidden from us, that has been
1: absented from the record. And why is that? That's one of the central questions of the film. Can some of these images be seen at Harvard or Schomburg uh, Library there in New York City?
2: Uh, some of them can. Uh, this is one of the other elements about the film that, that uh, you know we, we, we use it as a call to action to digitize more of these, these archives uh, because unless you're a scholar, unless you're doing academic research, these are kinds of images you would never come across because they're buried in some of these archives. But even be, beyond that, A lot of the images, and we looked at 20,000 images and we whittled it down to 950 for the film, a lot of these images were never meant to be public images. Most of these images were intended uh, as family photographs, photographs that were going to be sent uh, from a person going into the Army, wanting to share that with their loved ones, or a person who uh, uh, had moved, Uh, and they wanted to to, to send the reminder back to the people they left behind. Uh, These were family photographs that were in family photo albums, and they're now come down to us as historical artifacts, some of which are in in
1: public archives, many of which are in private archives. Man, 20,000 images? Are there any famous images, any iconic people from that era that we haven't seen?
2: Well... We haven't seen them, so they're not iconic. <laughs> uh, what we're familiar with, if you're just talking you know, strictly about the Civil War era photography, uh, you're mostly talking about the Matthew Brady collections. Uh, you know, That is the Civil War photographer. We don't know about James Presley Ball. We don't know about the Augustus Washingtons. We don't know about all the countless nameless people. Who were doing photography at that time, and, and so part of what we've done is to bring some of those hidden, those forgotten, those overlooked people uh, into prominence, so that we can see these things, so that we can understand uh, ha, that it's a much bigger, much broader, uh, you know, uh, history than has been, you know, the little sliver that that's been given to us. Um, no, we certainly, in, in terms of the broader breadth of the film, we certainly cover the, the Gordon Parks and the Roy D. Carrabhas. Uh Those would be two of the most iconic names that, that people might be familiar with. Uh, but, you know, thinking in terms of, uh, you know, Robert Senstack, who was a photographer for the Chicago Defender during the Civil Rights Marches especially, or Jack Franklin, uh, a photographer throughout Philadelphia, or uh, someone like... Um, um, Dowitt Petrus, who's a uh, an Eritrean Canadian American photographer, uh, you know, who's filming his lived realities today. Uh these these names may not be familiar with people, but you see their work uh, in the course of the film and, and you see that they're all part of this great lineage uh that goes all the way back to
1: Jules Leon. Okay. Yeah, um speaking earlier about uh iconic I'm thinking of Frederick Douglass and his uh he had a white family, of course. Were there any new images of he and his white family uh come about through your research?
2: No, we didn't uh, didn't look at, at his family portraits in, in terms of the Frederick Douglass uh you know part of the film. Uh and in the early days, you know, or or talking about that earlier period, we did focus on on two people who use photography in very strategic ways to make very definitive points at critical moments in in the public dialogue, if you will, about the role and place of blacks in the culture. Frederick Douglass was certainly one of those. Uh, He made, in the course of his lifetime, somewhere in the order of 160 photographs uh, and and became one of, if not the most photographed man of of his era uh, as a result. And his use of photography was the interesting element to us because he was making a, a point. He was number one. He was he was saying, "Look at me. I'm human. I'm just like you. Uh, that you know, I'm a person worthy of respect. I'm a person who who is you know not destitute. I'm not a a, a, a ward of the state. Uh, I, I'm I'm a fully self actualized person." look at me uh, and and by the way, he dressed the way he carried himself, the way the portrait you know he he molded himself in the portraits in order to make and emphasize that point point. and of course, everybody knows him as a great orator, but in terms of the portraiture and and the use of that portraiture is important to us because not only of the example that he that he set but also because he saw in the 1840s, eighteen forties er, eighteen late eighteen forties early eighteen fifties he saw the value of photography for black people. Number one, it was a way to have self-employment. If you were a photographer, you controlled your destiny. And and he encouraged people to take up the camera and use it to depict us and our people in, in positive ways that showed us as valuable citizens, as people worthy of respect. Uh, the second element to that was that by controlling our image, we couldn't get a good image at the hands of, 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 of white photographers because they were invested in the negative portrayal of black people in order to justify the economic isolation and, and the economic exploitation of black people as enslaved people. Uh, or they had a political motive in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the, the abolitionist folks, uh, one, you know, to, to, to try to fight slavery, but very, very, very few of the abolitionists, white abolitionists, were for an integrated or inclusive society. Their whole thing was that we'll send them back to Africa. Uh, so there was still, a, even within their use of photography to show uh, you know, the, 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 the white slavery should be abolished, uh, there was still a tinge of, of racial uh, separation, racial animosity in it. But Douglas saw that this was something that it, through the wealth of the images we could create ourselves, we could emancipate, liberate in our own minds who we are uh, because we would see these images of us as, as people uh, that were self-actualized, that were of value, that, 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 that had value in the culture. Uh, the second person that we focused on was Sir of the Truth. People know of Sojourner Truth. You know, I sell the shadow to support the substance. This uh, early suffragette, anti- abolitionist, but she was also equally as strategic in her use of photography in order to make political point. Uh, and uh, you know, this is a woman that, but people may not know. They look at some of these photographs. She was illiterate. She couldn't read uh she she did have good eyesight she, she didn't need glasses and yet when you look at the the way the 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 portraits of her have been constructed they show that you know she's learned she's holding books she's wearing glasses she's looking proper uh in you know, in terms of the context of the time uh she's dressed as a as again a woman who is self actualized self possessed uh in in her own dignity uh and these are very very you know, uh, we couldn't find very many women who had so many portraits and who used them so strategically at that moment, so she certainly was
1: an icon from that perspective. What other females did you find that used uh that imagery to their advantage uh prior to the civil war we we This really wasn't a
2: survey in that sense um and and we we do have a number of of Women, black women photographers, uh, who are active. But the earliest one that we focus on uh, is Florestine Perot Collins in New Orleans. Again, uh, who was in the 1900 census. There were there were 101 uh, photographers in the entire country, and Florestine is listed as a photographer. Well, actually, 101 women were photographers in the entire country, and she was listed as one of the 101 but we do know that there were at least one out of 100 black you know, uh, uh, photographers. There, there was at least one black woman, um, but she, she really was one of the earliest ones that, that we focus on. And what was interesting about her, uh, aside from the great research that uh, her great-grandniece did uh, to bring the story to light, is that in New Orleans in the 1900s, she started her own photography shop by herself. Uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur she didn't have a husband uh who helped her she didn't have a brother who was kind of the face of it and she worked behind the scenes she put it together and started it on her own and she was a proprietress of that studio uh and and uh she certainly was one of the earliest to do that now there were a number of other uh, uh, black women who were doing photography but not like that not not in terms of of being a a, a true entrepreneurial, uh, you know, self possessed woman who is this is my business and 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 she she really went out of her way to to photograph uh, all sectors of the New Orleans society at that time,
1: including a number of black subjects. And her her images available? Where would uh... the? Well, if you were to to, to
2: Google uh, Florestine Perot Collins. Uh, you would find some of her
1: images, but not very many. Okay. Um, I'm also thinking here of the uh, when we talk about photography and how it's used to convince or sway. I'm thinking of the Emmett Till situation and his mother's yep. decision to publicize his his photo in the Jet magazine. Um, yes. Exactly, and and that is a very critical moment uh, in the film as well.
2: Uh, we we it, because it, it it also crystallized the role of the black press uh, at, at in terms of really jumpstarting the civil rights movement, even before Rosa Parks uh, refused to move from the back of the bus. Uh, I, I mean, you could look at that as 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 kind of like the real start. Of the civil rights movement was was there. I mean, the black press was all over that. Uh, we focus on um, Ernest Ernest Withers, uh, who was the, one of the, one of the photographers uh, at the Emmett Till trial. He also created a small booklet uh, about the trial, uh, and and you have a whole lot of of uh, images, some of which people may be familiar with, but many many more that people are not familiar with uh, that that we do to show in, in in that particular moment uh in in the uh, the mid century
1: I'm sorry
2: I said we do show some of those uh, Ernest Wither photographs that that you know aside from the 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 the, the, the more iconic uh, image of Emmett Till in his casket um there are a number of other images that you know people may not be familiar with that uh, are equally important uh, and we certainly give them Quite a bit of
1: play. Okay. Um, what about images from the sports world, um, going back to Negro Leagues baseball, et cetera? Is that covered? Um, in- we, no, no,
2: we we didn't cover that. Um, we 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 were really focusing on the photographers, and we were really looking at the push. Uh, forward in terms of advancing uh, a, 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 a a as uh, Deb Willis, who is also one of the co producers of the film and whose book Reflections in Black uh, was the uh, initial inspiration for the film says you know, that that create a social political and and uh, and historical space for the black subject for black people in the culture um, and and so it really is a it 's a look at the use of photography
1: to to advance the race if you will okay then when we talk about that power of those images and the positive ways in which they were used how does that compare or contrast to the images we see today on facebook rap videos social media uh paparazzi how do you compare <laughs> and contrast that In many ways, it's quite similar to what people
2: were fighting against,
0: uh, you know,
2: over the generations, uh, over over the hundred and seventy odd years that the the film covers. Um, I'm struck really by, you know, the one of the most I think uh, poignant parts of the film is looking at the images from the uh, the the 1900 Paris exhibition that uh, was. there was a Negro exhibition, the Georgia Negro exhibit, at the 1900 World's Fair. Uh, WBD the boys was the curator. Uh, Thomas Askew, a black photographer from Atlanta, uh, was the principal photographer that was used. Uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, another very savvy user of photography uh, in order to make it a point and, and to advance a, an issue uh was the sponsor behind it he he was able to get the US government actually to pay for uh the exhibit to be assembled and then to travel to uh, to paris but when you look at these images of of a thriving uh black middle class uh victorian uh you know 70 not even 70 not even a generation past the civil war um, it, it in to, in contrast to what were the popular images uh, of blacks as criminals, the black brute, as blacks as lazy, but the watermelon, the alligator bait. Um, I mean, that di- dichotomy in terms of the way the black subject has been shown is is almost exactly what we're dealing with today uh, in terms of just solid, everyday black folks going about their lives being self-possessed uh being uh self-determined uh you know validated in in what they do versus yeah showing us as uh, you know the, the uh thugs or gangsters or uh, whores or uh you know irresponsible criminal i mean it, it's almost exactly the same thing uh and and one of the things that we've we've been telling people as we've gone through uh, a number of these Q&As after the film You know, those who forget the past
0: are are, are
2: ultimately going to repeat it. And and what we see is an ignorance about who we are, where we come from as a culture, having to be relearned
1: almost all over again, Um,
2: not just white folks but black folks as well.
1: Yeah, those images, uh, as you were uh, recounting that, I was thinking of the images coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, Uh, during that instance – when uh, Michael Brown was shot down with his hands right. in the air, and how uh, the people that were out there trying to get their rights are described as protesters, rowdy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, you you just
2: go back. Yeah, go back to C- uh, Katrina. Right? There was a famous uh, image on the front page of the New York Times that showed two people uh, or two couples: uh, a black couple and a white couple. Post. Katina. Uh, a white couple is shown uh, you know amongst a, a whole bunch of debris and, and, and kind of you know picking up things uh, you know that are around them and they're 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 said they're trying to rebuild their lives. You have black people in a not dissimilar pose and they're described as looters. It's the same thing. Right? But you know, after the Civil War we had in, in, in the Reconstruction period we we had black people Trying to get their families together, trying to 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 build them, themselves up, get their lives together. They showed these images of them as families, and then at the same time, you know, we're being described as marauders and looters and people that you know that, that are not under civil control. So whether it's the 1870s, whether it's uh, you know Katrina in 2005, or or if it's Ferguson uh, in 2014, you know, we as an ahistorical society because we refuse to learn, are condemned to repeat our
1: past. Were there any photographers back in the day that covered the uh, New York draft riots? Did that... Uh, I'm, I, uh,
2: you know, the draft riots were 1850s. I'm sure there were, but we,
1: we, we didn't, didn't find any. That didn't come across your radar then?
2: No, those images, if they exist... Um, they they've not been digitized and they're 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 not they're they're part of the hidden history. Um, I forget the exact number of archives we looked at, uh, but it, 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 it's you know approaching several hundred archives all across the country, and a very very limited and 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 and, and just scratching the surface uh, really of their collections are digitized at all. Most of them, you know, are still dealing with physical artifacts. And in in many cases, some of those physical artifacts, the actual photographs, aren't even cataloged. So, again, it's what we try to do in in a very limited amount of time is to show in a a kind of a tantalizing tease, the richness, the vastness that's out there still. And we kind of like are are encouraging folks to pick up that baton to – you know, to go out and discover and find, uh, you know, like, the, you know, we have a section in the film where we talk about the final renaissance. And, and one of the things we try to convey is that imagistically, you know, we are familiar with, culture is familiar with, James Van Der Zee because those are the images that not necessarily the only ones that survived, but because of the, the reappraisal uh, of his career and his life that took place in, uh, I think, it was 1986, uh, there was a big exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, it just brought him back to to the forefront of, of people's consciousness and their their, their collective understanding. Ah, oh, there's there's Vanders. But there were many Vanderses across the country. Uh the, there was a Harlem Renaissance going on in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, from Richard Rogers, uh, Richard Roberts, rather, in uh, in South okay. Carolina, uh, all the way uh to uh to San Francisco. Uh and, and uh Lewis Watts, who is a photographer uh as well as a professor, I think at UC Santa Cruz, uh has put together a wonderful book uh called Harlem of the West. And he has a number of images uh of, that were being taken uh from San Francisco, from um think the name of the uh, exact part of San Francisco. Um uh it's um uh, I know it begins with an S. <laughs> uh and it's uh Fremont, I think. No, it's not Fremont, but it's it's in San Francisco. It's a famous uh was a very, very famous jazz location within San Francisco. And it was it, it was there their Harlem. Um all the clubs were there, uh the all the all the people were there. I mean it, it was uh it was really quite special. But you know those are almost completely unknown to us uh and so you know one of the things that lewis was was, was was it's so great for him to have done uh is to have you know
1: finally bring their names in into the public consciousness you mentioned earlier going back uh, going back to reconstruction where could an average black family uh go into a black studio be photographed and how would it cost them uh
2: it it was as uh, Cheryl Davis, um, who's also a, a scholar, a, a art historian, uh, says it, it was a it, it was a sacrifice for them. Um, I mean, these these were not necessarily people with a lot of, of, of disposable income, uh, and so to go to a studio and to have a portrait taken, you know, we have to think it's not the same as today, where you you just take your cell phone and you point it out there and you make a selfie and boom, you have got a picture. Uh, going into a studio, uh, meant, you know, several hours out of your, your day, uh, because the technology was slow, uh, and, and, you know, in order to make the portrait to make the, the picture, uh, it, it took at least an hour, uh, to, you know, to stand there perfectly still without moving, uh, and, and it cost, uh, you know, if it was 25 cents or 50 cents in that time, uh, you know, right. it would probably be equivalent to, uh, you know,
1: 25 or $50 today. Yeah, that would be quite a hit for some families. Um, and there's yet a lot
2: of- they did it. And yet they did it. That's just, This is the other important thing, because we show some of these photographs for exactly that reason, because it was so important to these people to be recorded, to have that image taken, because it it, it was a statement. It wasn't just a casual Oh, you know, I'm going to take this photograph. To Boom. No, they, they may have saved up for, and we have to think about the time as well, because what we're looking at, um, in, in, in a number of cases were formally enslaved people, and they're able to say now, this is who I am. This is the way I see myself. This is the, the image that I'm putting out into the world, not just for me, but for the people I love and for the people that, you know, the, the, the generation is unborn. I mean, these folks, in order to make that commitment, um, they, they did it with considerable uh, intention, intentionality uh, about that act. And they understood how important it was to, to make that sacrifice. And this is, this is important for us today, because we've got young people out here who are taking photographs willy-nilly, we we live in, a, in an era where photographs and photographic images you know, bombard us from all sides. I mean, it's, they're, they're so ubiquitous that we don't even think about them anymore. And yet, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, some of these cell phones are going to be dug up by some future, Uh-oh. and they're going to use those images as a way of trying to understand what was happening here and now. And and so this is you know, we, we, we need to spend a little bit more time, uh, being a little little more considerate in terms of you know, what is it that we're doing and where are these images going? Um,
0: Hello? why well, do think
1: it's been so
0: long since someone like yourself has come on? I don't know where happened <laughs> to uh can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? I can okay. now. Preston, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? Okay. All right, great. Okay, go ahead. Continue, tell us. No,
2: I'm I'm done.
0: <laughs> Hello? Hello. Did some um Ask the next question, Preston. You can just ask the next question. Okay. Well we were um I was uh, commending these gentlemen for bringing this film about, um, and, um, you know, that our people survived slavery. Uh, there's pictures and evidence for that, as you mentioned, It shows that we were uh, completely involved in our own liberation. And I think that's a point, um, very well taken because it's so missed today, uh, that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves when actually those that were held in bondage, actually save themselves uh free themselves from that from that bondage um now what about the responsibility of photographers today to teach the community uh relative to this history and the value of uh picture taking image taking etc
2: yeah this is this is really i think one of the um uh the 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 maybe the, the, the least focused on element in the film uh in, in terms of the way folks you know re- review it but we interweave the history of black photography and black photographers with contemporary photographers and artists who use photography for exactly that purpose because all of these concurrently working artists and photographers are are incredibly invested in helping people and getting people to understand the importance of these archives, to bring these archives into the modern consciousness and to instill in young people uh, Alternatives for 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 the way they look at themselves, Gordon Parks had a, uh, an article in Life magazine, and, and, and he said that it, it was uh, for him in his life, uh, it was a choice between the gun or the camera. Jamal Shabazz resonated with that when he read that article you know, many, many years later. And for him, it was a choice between the gun or the camera. And starting in the, the late 70s and the 1980s, um, he would go around Brooklyn in the Bronx showing young people, particularly young black men, here's the power of the camera and taking images in your hand. This is where you should put your energies, not in, you know, in the gun which is a dead end, uh, and he's not, he's not been alone in that example of, of, of contemporary photographers and artists trying to encourage people uh, to see the possibilities and the limitless possibilities in front of them from the power of taking images and for telling their story and for representing themselves and for validating their experiences. Um, I mean, Jamal uh, is, is one generation. Uh, Russell Fredericks is a new generation. Um, you know, a Panamanian American working in Bed Stuy, who's uh, you know, certainly uh, photographed a lot of hip hop. But what he's really interested in photographing are, as he says, his people. You know, he wants them to see themselves for the beautiful people that they are, because this. Is the real danger of not understanding the power of self-representation? If you ingest, as Chester Higgins, another photographer, uh, actually with the New York Times, uh, that's in the film, says, if you ingest this diet of what the culture feeds you, a, a diet of, of these derogatory images of these, the, the, these images that, that debase your, your your humanity, sooner or later. You don't necessarily see yourself as having any value, and that's what leads to this nihilism, to this this this, uh, you know this this you know most young people today thinking that you know that they have no future, they have no life, and that you know if they get to be thirty, that's a miracle. But taking control of of your representation, of, of being able to show yourself as having value, of having worth. Uh, of being, uh, you know, people uh, who love, who are human, uh, who 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 have um, lives worth living, uh, that can change everything. Uh, Ratcliffe Roy, a Jamaican American, also living in in Brooklyn, um, is is very much on top of this this part of, of of the importance and the power of taking pictures and putting them out there. So this is when I was talking about the intentionality, uh, You know, the, the young people today just taking pictures willy-nilly, oh, you know, run out of space on the phone, you just bleed a whole bunch of things. We have to really begin to see these images for the power that they represent. They're, they're the power of self-determination, of self-actualization, of self-validation. And when we do that, when we see... The humanity in them, Um, Leopold Singare, who was a Negritude poet uh, in the 1960s, says that the photograph is the one true uh, link between one person's eyes and another's heart. This is at the heart of the film. This is what we focus on. How do we see each other? And do we see each other in the fullness of our humanity? Because when we do that, and we see the positive in ourselves, we see something worth fighting for in ourselves, then we're less inclined to destroy ourselves, which is really what's at the core of the gun or the camera choice.
0: You know, you made a a reference uh, earlier to self-representation. Could you give us that quote again? I think that's very important. A number of people are really excited about seeing your film. And... um, before we get off the air i want you to uh, give us a website where folks can go so they can find out when that film is coming to their location certainly
2: um, the film is being distributed by first run features and and if you spell out the, the you know the f i r s t first run features.com and uh, you go to the, you know, click on the, um, the, the, the in theaters now, and, and you'll see through a Lens Darkly, and you hit that, and it'll take you to our page on the First Run Features website. The trailer is there. Uh, you'll have uh, links for the play dates. You can see some of the reviews, what people are saying in the press. Uh, and you'll, you'll also have um, an ability, if we're not coming to your city, uh there we we are also working with an outfit called tug t u g g dot com and what tug will do is if you can get uh, seventy five or a hundred of your friends together they will bring the film to to you uh and, and so there's a there's a link uh to tug for you to be able to do that as well and of course oh. our website uh, our, our, our website where we try to keep it up to date, uh, but things have been moving so fast, so it, we're just a little step behind. But, uh, there's a lot of material, uh, at the, the numeral one world, numeral one family dot me, M-E. Um, and that, that will take you to, uh, you can see through a lens darkly there. Uh, there, there's a lot. Now, we interviewed, uh, 52 people for the film and we were certainly not able to get all of them into it. Uh, we only had 90 minutes. Um, but what we are doing is releasing some of the material uh, in what we called uh, Thrulin's Darkly Short Shots. And these short shots uh, cover everything from um, you know, what inspired people to uh, to take up the camera, uh, when they first got their camera, uh, how they, they perfected their craft, uh, some very interesting personal reflection uh, by the photographers and, uh, and and the scholars who are dealing with photography about these archives. I mean, there's been some, some incredible stories. You'll find that uh, at the oneworldonefamily.me uh, website. You'll also have information there about our companion transmedia project, which is called Digital Diaspora Family Reunion and DDFR for short. And what's important about DDFR is that an integral part of being able to make the film was being able to find the images. And because a lot of images were not available in, in archives, uh, we created a project that would go around and activate personal archives. Individuals and in their own families uh, can come to a digital diaspora event uh, and at this event, uh, we we would teach them about visual literacy. We would uh, help them with uh, digitization. We'd introduce how to do it, uh, and we would provide space for people to share their own family stories and, and images. Uh, and it was through that process that we were able to find almost another 10,000 images, uh, and, and and many of which uh, ultimately did wake it into the film because they were they were covering periods of time when we just didn't have any images. So we, we would be in the 1880s, and uh, we'd be looking for images from the South, and, well, lo and behold, the people who had them were black families in the South or black families from the South, uh, and because their ancestors had gone to black photographers and had studio portraits taken that we would have that that, those archival images now so uh, digital diaspora travels around the country uh, in many cases it travels with the film and we'll have the screenings of the film on one side and we'll have digital diaspora roadshows on another and uh, it gives the people an opportunity to put their own story into the public record into the history because that really is what it's all about Um, what has come to us as quote the the received wisdom uh, of history uh, has been shaped and and tailored depending on the the um you know, particular points of view of the gatekeepers for that official history, and what's really important is the history that we're that we're sitting on, that we have in our own archives, and that you know doesn't have a, a doesn't have an ability to come out unless we create these, these these spaces for it, and that's what we did with Digital Piaspora. Oh,
0: that is uh, totally awesome! There, uh, I want to ask you about images and textbooks. Our uh, producer Leslie. Um, revealed to us that her mother uh, cried at the thought of being a student and had to read a book called The Twelve Little Negroes and how the white students um, cackled and laughed at her. Are you doing any work towards addressing images and textbooks? Well,
2: we're not doing that directly, um, but we are certainly, uh, we, we've made some st- stabs at creating educational uh, activities and curricula materials uh, around uh, the, the, the new images and new archives that we have found. Uh, and, and some of those are available um, on our One World, One Family um, uh, website under the Digital Diaspora Educational Resources. Um, because we know that you know, the history of photography, the history of images of black people uh has not expanded in in the uh the 35 40 years that, that Deborah Willis has been creating the field if you will because she really has been the pioneer uh at trying to to in get this history to become known and to get it included uh in into uh, uh you know historical uh uh literature uh, and you know, when, and she was inspired by the fact that, in in, in, in as a student of photography, uh, in the 1960s, there were only two textbooks, and in, in both of those textbooks, there were no black photographers at all, and there were very very few images of black people. And what images there were showed us in, in as broken down, uh, you know, poor, uh, you know, basically forgettable subjects. And so she, she, coming from a family um, that, that, that used a lot of photography, uh, that was familiar with a lot of local photographers in their communities, and knew that there was a wealth of images being made, you know, where are these images, and why aren't they included in these books? And so she took it upon herself, virtually single-handedly, uh, to, to, to do the research, to, to find these archives, and to make some of these images known, and certainly to make more of and these black some photographers from your
0: uh, family album is that correct? Well, yes. Uh,
2: Thomas, uh, yeah, Thomas Harris's uh, grandfather uh, was an amateur photographer, uh, like so many people. Uh, he was he fell in love with the gadget and and, and has always mm-hmm. had one. And uh, the reason we did that is because that's where the history was. So, for instance, um, Robert Allen um, was a famous photographer, covered a lot of uh, uh, of Harlem Renaissance artists primarily. Uh, He was a photographer. He married a woman who hated the fact that he was a photographer, and upon his death, she burned his entire archive, some some 35,000 negatives. So the only places that you'll have an Allen photograph today are in somebody's archive, somebody's family photo album. Which is why, you know, in Thomas's case, their family photo album was rich with images. They had a number of Vanderzee uh, photographs at very critical moments in his grandfather's life. He also had Austin Hansen photographs. Uh, you know, Austin Hansen became a family photographer for some of their their bigger celebrations. Uh, and and you know, uh, this is. Just one person, one family, but they, because of the times that they lived, of the things that they did, they were able to build an archive that, from an historical perspective, now in hindsight, is really quite remarkable. And so, part of what we wanted to do, you know, in terms of how do you find a a, a narrative thread to get through all of this history we felt it was a family photo album and, and what better way then you know to personalize this story and and to use uh the the journey of Thomas's grandfather and his father in contrast uh and how they used the camera how they saw the power of of making images uh in terms of defining themselves and creating a a, a space for themselves in the culture
0: oh man that is great Also, I know your film uh, concentrates on photography, but I'm interested to know about moving images. When did that come into play? Do you have some information on that uh, when it comes to black folk? Because I think there has been some images, moving images, that are coming forth from the 1920s, uh, particularly in Oklahoma, Louisiana, et cetera. Uh, Does your film touch on that in any way?
2: Uh, the film does not touch on the moving image. This film doesn't touch on the moving image, uh, and we were certainly there uh, at the beginning of, of, of that technology as well. Uh, I mean, even before Oscar Michaud, uh, there were black uh, filmmakers uh, on both the east and west coast and as well as uh, you know people making their own what we would call uh family family videos uh you know throughout the south there's a there's a very famous uh, uh reverend from Atlanta who who uh, who who went on a tour of of the southern states and he took just unbelievable photographs in the 1900s um, or, or moving moving images uh, from like 1912 to the 1918. Um, so we know that we're there. And that really is the subject of another project that uh, that, that we've uh, been developing and, and we'll probably turn our attention to once this film kind of like gets past uh, its freshness. It's just coming out now, but um, that project is called From Property to Person. And it looks at uh, the you know the representation of, of the black subject in popular culture and the moving image, movies, and um, is, is really one of the focuses of that.
0: Oh man, I'll really be looking forward to that. In addition to um, your current film, "Reflections in Black" through a lens darkly, um, which is based on a book by Deborah Willis. uh, Do you have anything else to add? Um, Our hour is just about up. Is there something or some image or some um, fact that you really want to get across to our listeners? um, I I think the most important...
2: Oh, we definitely encourage them to come out and see the film. We definitely want them to bring young people to see this film. Uh, yes, there are, some, there are some hard images in the film, so uh, we don't think it's necessarily appropriate for very young children. But if uh, they're 13, 14, 15 years old and up, uh, you know, bring them, because this is for them. Uh, this, this film will show them. I mean, we start off... Uh, you know the Sheila Prebright, uh, who's from Georgia, uh, a, a, a brilliant young photographer. She was telling a story in the film about how, uh, at six years old, you know she she's with an army brat family. They're in Germany, and she discovers, to her horror, that she's not like the other kids in her elementary school. She discovers that she's black. And she didn't want to be black. This is a woman who is maybe all of uh, you know her, her mid to late twenties. So this is not that that long ago, and and this is not like uh, you know we're looking at the Gordon Parks uh, you know 1954 images uh, with the doll test. This, this this is something you know much much more contemporary. Exactly. She didn't want to be black. And, and what we're trying to do with this film is to address all those children who had that feeling that being black is somehow to be less than. This film is something to celebrate, to say, yes, we are. And we're proud of that fact. And I think that's so vitally important in these particular days and age, because part of, part of the problem that we face as a culture, let alone as a people, is a sense that somehow we're not worthy. And that couldn't be further from truth. And when you see these images and you see these people who have withstood infinitely more trial and tribulation than we today have withstood, and they still stand proud, they stand sure, they stand Mm -hmm. affirmed, that's important, and, and we need—we need—that's we, a history that we need to remember uh, because it, it can
0: inform
2: how we deal with the issues that we we confront every day.
0: Yes, let's go back to the doll test that you mentioned, because uh, yes. I'm sure a lot of our uh, younger uh, viewers or listeners may not know what you're talking about, and that would be the original doll test, and I think it was replicated. Could you give us a short review on that? Yes,
2: in in uh, in in the lead up to what would become Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall uh, and the the National um, Associate uh, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund uh, um, asked a very prominent black uh, um, uh, scholar to, um, and, and his name just flew out of my head, John. And I, I forget, um, but they asked. You know, they, they needed to, to do some work about uh, the way black people are viewed, and so they constructed this test. They have two dolls, a black doll and a white doll, and they would ask black children to uh, a series of questions and have them point to the doll. So, for instance, they would ask, "Which doll? Uh, which doll do you think is better, or which doll do you think is is is?" Uh, um, you know, um, more fair, or do, which one do you think is uh, better looking, better, you know,
1: uh,
2: better looking, more moral? All all of these different value questions, and almost uniformly, uh, the black children were would would point positive to the white doll and all the negatives to the black doll.
0: Uh,
2: and uh, that was part of what they presented. What 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 Thurgood Marshall presented. To the, uh, the the Supreme Court and their arguments on why separate but equal was not working, and and it was partly on the basis of those doll tests that that, that that Brown versus Board of Education was 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 held the way it was.
0: And wasn't that uh, study replicated with nearly the same results?
2: It was. Uh, I don't know if it was in the two thousands or it was in the late nineteen nineties.
0: Uh, no. But uh, not, yes. I think it was probably as late as two thousand eight or nine.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. the results are almost exactly the same.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead, I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, and again, uh my guess has been uh Don Terry along with Thomas Allen uh Harris um uh, in reference to their film Reflections in Black Through a Lens Darkly based on the yeah you know,
2: the, the the film is actually Through a Lens Darkly Black Photographers and the Emergence of a People and it was inspired by the Deb Willis book Reflections in Black
0: Okay got that straight thank you and they can go to firstrunfeatures.com can, right uh to find out when that film is coming to their location, and also a trailer is there.
2: Right. Exactly. Okay. And if, if for some other reason it's not coming to this to their particular location uh, through firstrunfeatures.com, dot com, they can also access TUG T U G G dot com, uh, and and they can request a special screening if they put together a group of seventy five to one hundred people.
0: Great. Uh, We're going to close the show out, and I'm going to let you have the last word.
2: Well, I encourage everyone to uh, keep taking photographs, and more importantly, archive them, save them. These are precious objects that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they're our history today, they will be our history tomorrow, and they're so important for passing on to the next generation, the, the generations not yet born.
0: Thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show this evening. We appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Good night. Take care. All right. Okay, everyone, uh, these shows are available at iTunes, Black History University. Just Google that. And if you have ideas for shows, uh, give our producer uh, information on that. And my name is Preston Washington. I've been your host, and I want to say good night to everyone. Good night.